Hello, everybody, and welcome to another financial well-being podcast with uh, myself, David Lloyd, and Chris Budd. And it's always a pleasure to come and uh, sit and uh, talk about financial well-being with Chris. How's your week been, Chris? I've had a very interesting week, David. Thank you for asking. Um, I've been up and down the country. Well, I'd say up and down the country. Glasgow, Leeds and Birmingham. That's kind of up and down the country, isn't it? Well, it's... Yes, it is. Yes. Starting on up and then moving down. Given that we're back at Bristol, yeah, up and yeah. then down. Um, and I've been doing some workshops with other advisors on how to use coaching skills for a company called Nucleus. And it's been really interesting, but I've made an observation during my travels that I'd like to share with you, which is, I don't think I know a city in the country that looks good when entered by train. It's a very good point, yes, because the trains tend to come in, don't they? You see all the backs of all the houses. Yeah, and industrial estates. Well, actually, I'm going to disagree with you there. Bath. Yeah, I, you know what? I had a horrible As feeling. you come into Bath, Bath yeah. you see Bath all up above you there. All I'll the give Georgia. you Bath. Yeah, yeah. But, but apart from that, no, I'll get you point. Against Bath, I'll give you Birmingham, Wakefield, Leeds, <laughs> Bristol, let's be honest. You know, um, there aren't many. No, it's true. I suspect Venice might have a shout. Well, except the station at Venice is outside the main. Oh, is it? City. So you yes. don't go into Venice think, across the no, lake. No, no, no. By <laughs> train, funnily enough. It suddenly appears in the middle yeah. of the water, in the middle of the lagoon. So, um, cities that look good to be entered by train. I think that could be an interesting one for our listeners to, to challenge okay. us on. Okay, so, okay, there's one for the listeners. So, if you can come up with a more beautiful city to enter by train than Bath, please let us know. At Finn Wellbeing is the uh, Twitter handle. We'll give you all of the more contact details at the end of the podcast. Let's move on then. So today's podcast, Chris, what have you got in store for us today? Well, we're going to have a look at what some of our um, listeners have been tweeting us. um, And we're going to read out a couple of particularly interesting and one rather moving um, submission from somebody. And then we're going to have a little chat about disposable income and how we can get well-being from it. Excellent. Um, And just, I think it's worth at this point reminding everybody that all the proceeds from this book are going to charity, are they not? They are, yes. Uh, we've had a good week with the book, actually, because um, I hope it's okay to mention W. H. Smiths have ordered a 1,000 copies of it, so that's oh, really? great news. They're going to do a bit of a thing in um, June on the book, which is good. And all the proceeds go to an organisation called the Penny Braun Cancer Centre. And uh, the Penny Braun Cancer Centre um, was the inspiration in many ways behind the book. I think we've touched that on, uh, on that on previous podcasts. And um, we've had an email from somebody who uh, I want to read out. Um, Her name is Amanda McAvoy. She said we could use her name. And she's had direct experience of the Penny Braun UK Cancer Centre. It's a bit long, but I'd like to read it out in its entirety because I think it's quite touching. Amanda says, Penny Braun is a cancer support centre. Help me to draw my own resources to fight breast cancer. I appreciated the opportunity within a safe, healing environment to talk openly with other men and women from all backgrounds, knowing that we all shared similar fears and experiences. I learnt about nutrition, relaxation and generally how to cope in the most beautiful, calming and supportive space. I made some good friends amongst both patients and staff who made me feel most welcome and supported at all times. I particularly appreciated the offer extended to my daughter, who has Crohn's disease, that she may also benefit from joining me on a residential stay at Penny Bron as her health deteriorated while she was trying to help me. I cannot recommend enough the delicious, natural, homegrown food, the wonderful alternative therapies, the experienced and kind staff, the wonderful environment. Thank you, Penny Braun, for helping me to help myself through a tough journey. Well, that's lovely. Uh, and interestingly, I was at the, the launch from the book the other week uh, and I was at the Penny Braun Centre and, and got a real sense of what a lovely, comforting space that is. And then just a week later, I found myself at the local football club here, Backwell Athletics, and people I know had organised a, 
a charity football match. Uh, and me as the uh, Bristol City Stadium announcer, they wanted me to come along and do the announcements before the game, which I was happy to do. And that was raising money for Penny Braun as well. So it's obviously an organisation which has touched a lot of people's lives and hearts. It does. It makes a big difference. And they inspired the book because their approach is all about well-being. It's about the whole person approach, wellness. And of course, that inspired me to think about that approach, applying it to finance. So there's a lot of links and it's a great organisation. Excellent. Okay. Now, before we go on to today's subject, uh, we'd just like to recap on a few things that uh, have been raised in previous podcasts and some of the tweets we've been getting in from people uh, who seem to be very much enjoying the stuff that we're putting out there. So um, in a previous podcast, you told us about Harvard's study about what makes people happy. Yeah. And and the overwhelming thing from that study, if people who've heard previous podcasts will remember, is it's not money, it's relationships. Um, and that started a discussion on uh, our Twitter account at Finwellbeing about success and what makes you happy. What does success look like? This is a whole area that we've been we've been talking with people about and having some interesting tweets. Yes, I'd like to read some of them out, if I may. So Matt Bradford at Mr X Mastery, what a great Twitter handle that is. So the, 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 these people are saying, you know, what is that? What are their thoughts on success? What does success mean to them? So Matt says, making the most of your body and mind. Working out what you don't need to be happy and getting what you do need, helping others. Do you make the most of your body and mind, David? Um, yeah, I think I made the most of my mind. My body, I've got a lot of my body to make the most of. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if, I, if I had slightly less of my body, I would probably make more of it, if that makes any sense. I've lost myself think, in my own logic there. I think you've got a great body for radio, David. Thank you very much. I would tend to agree with you. Uh, we've also heard from Paula White, at Paula White underscore UK. She says, success is recognising that to live successfully, you need to make today happy, not pin success and happiness on a future goal. Being happy in the moment, I like the sound of that. That sounds a bit mindfulness, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I think yeah, that's, it a, that's a very good shape. Big buzz thing at the moment, isn't it, mindfulness? It seems to work for a lot of people. Tom Dewey, at Tom Dewey Poet. Uh, is he actually a poet? Do you know Tom? Tom is an extraordinary poet. Uh, he's a stand-up poet and does poetry slams, I think they call them. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, where they, they poetry competitions where you stand up and fight poetry with other poets. How cool is that? Yeah. Well, his version of success says, if you're going to spend years trying to get somewhere, it ought to be somewhere you'll recognise on arrival. <laughs> like Birmingham, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On the train. You're going, oh, this is rubbish, isn't it? No, that's a very good... I think I absolutely agree with that. Uh, how do you know when you're successful? It's a very interesting question. Yeah, and if you, so if you don't set yourself goals and have ideas in your own mind about what it's going to not necessarily look like, but feel like, mm. I think that's you, You've just too. thrown a word in there, uh, uh, the G-bomb you've just thrown in, goals. Mm. I think that's going to need to be a subject for another podcast. I, I'm really thinking a lot about goals at the moment and how I don't really like goals very much because goals require you to aim to something specifically. Um, and uh, although it's important to know what success looks like, I'm not sure a finite goal is the answer. That's definitely one for another podcast. Mm. So we'll come back to that one. Uh, coming on to now about what success looks like at JDL Consultants. If you're successful in business and miserable in life, you're not successful. <laughs> I want that on a T-shirt. Yes. <laughs> I really like that copyright at JDL Consultants. Uh, and finally, at Lotus Dave. I think his Twitter name tells us what he sees as success. Um, he says success is freedom to do what you want, when you want and how you want. Being healthy and happy ability to smile in adversity. 
Mm. I was talking with somebody over lunch today who has been through a bit of adversity himself, and he was saying about perspective and um, having had a bit of a tough last few years, he's able to smile through adversity. And I do wonder sometimes, I mean, you've had a few tough times over the last few years. I do wonder sometimes whether having a bit of adversity does actually help you then smile through the next adversity. I think it does. There's something about uh, you need sometimes need to get quite low and, and really appreciate how difficult life can be to then, when you come out the other side of that, appreciate how good life is. And then when you get to another low, you're more likely to be able to cope with it. Exactly. Uh, and indeed, if the, the if the other low is not as low as the previous low, it's never going to be as bad. <laughs> <laughs> we better stop there or we're going to talk ourselves into linguistic riddles. Exactly. Um, so there's another one you've had as well, Chris, uh, from shininglight.co.uk. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, this is a really interesting website, which um, is... It's a it's a financial website, but it's really interested in musicians and music, and particularly about what success looks like to a musician. Is it financial? Um, are there other uh, rewards you get from playing music? I play in a covers band, and um, I really enjoy it. We don't get much money, petrol money at best, but that's not why we do it. But then again, it's not my living. So if you're trying to do it for a living, clearly you've got to be concerned about the money. So um, shininglights.co.uk interviews up-and-coming musicians, and they had an interview which is particularly relevant here. I'd just like to read out an extract. It's with a singer-songwriter called Janine Barry, and she talked about the interaction between music and money, and she said the following. I think there are many ways of being successful. I understand the general perception of it, that you are well-known and have a lot of money, I think there is so much in between, and also not everyone has the same goal. It sounds cliche, but at the end of the day, making music shouldn't just be about how many people approve of it or how much money you make with it, but it should be about why you're doing it, the passion and love for it. I consider myself successful because I get to do what I love and I keep reaching for more, which is fun. I have fulfilled many of my desires already, and don't get me wrong, I want to be able to make a living of my passion, but in what way, shape or form that comes about, I leave open. So I think that's a common dilemma that many musicians and artists face, that they need to make money out of it, but they're not doing it for the money. Um, and I know from personal experience of trying to get paid from somebody after a gig, <laughs> the money is important when you're not getting it. Well, uh, take my uh, case as, as, as a writer. Um, you know, I, I write for a living. That's what I do. And of course, I enjoy it. I have a passion for it. There are times when I just really enjoy the creative process of sitting down and writing. But if nobody pays me to do that writing, I don't pay my bills. You know, I don't get to live. So uh, you, you've sometimes got to be quite uh, business minded about what to many people is a passion. Uh, so for me, I know we've had this dis discussion before. I keep wanting to write a novel, but I can write a TV script of six and a half thousand words for which people will pay me fairly quickly. And the thought of writing a novel of 100,000 words, spending six months doing it, and then not even getting any money for it, keeps putting me off. Six months? Mine took me three years. <laughs> yeah, and then you only you... write one day a week. <laughs> That's true. Um, and then you get the, the bizarre situation where people um, discover that you've written a novel and they make this automatic assumption that if they know you and you've written a novel, it must therefore be rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> right, OK, so let's move on then. Chris, what's happening today? What are we talking about today? In today's podcast, I like to have a chat about disposable income and how to spend it to maximise well-being. We've talked about uh, how people spend money and what makes them happy. We had some tweets in the last podcast on that, if you remember, David. And we also looked about how to calculate our disposable income. Well, now we know how much money we have spare each month. What should we do with it? How should we spend it? This is the fun bit. Mm. How to spend money to increase our happiness. 
There are a few areas that we've covered that are quite well known. For We won't go over again retail therapy, for example. If anybody who hasn't heard a previous podcast, if you spend money to buy stuff, then you tend to have very short-lived well-being. But if you buy experiences, it gives memories, which is much long-lasting well-being. So we've done that one. We'll leave that one there. And let's look at a few other areas of how we can spend money to increase well-being. First of all, for example, spending money on other people. And I would suggest that you should do this, David, a lot more with me, for example. Yeah, okay, I do. Well, I'm subsidising you heavily doing this podcast, given the amount of ridiculous money that you pay me to do it. Don't tell people you're paid. <laughs> Spending money on others. That Harvard study we talked about, happiness is derived from the quality of relationships. Well, actually, it, if we have some spare disposable income and we spend that, for example, uh, maybe there's somebody you haven't seen for a while, buy a book on Amazon, one of your favourite books, and get it delivered to them. I bet you'll get a little card back or a telephone call, which will enhance both of your well-being quite considerably. So that's a fun way of spending a bit of extra disposable income. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that, actually. I think that, uh, I mean, I've got a birthday coming up uh, next week. And, Do I feel uh, a hint coming uh, on? Yes, I've got a birthday coming up next week, Chris, next Tuesday, as it happens. Uh, and so um, uh, my partner and uh, my son were saying, oh, what would you like? What would you like? And do you know what? I kind of feel I've got most of the things that I want uh, so so they, everyone tells me I'm a difficult person to buy for. But I know loads of people that I would like to buy things for. So I'm almost considering buying people things for my birthday <laughs> that I know they would like. Because actually I know that makes them happy. And making the people I care about happy makes me feel happy. I think that's that's a... Great largesse, and can I add myself to that list, please? <laughs> but this presupposes I like you, Chris, and oh, yeah, want to make point. you happy. <laughs> of course I will. What would, what would you like, Chris? What would you like for my birthday? I'd, I'd like a canoe. Oh, not the canoe again. <laughs> it's going to sit in the garden and never no, get used. No, I found a way to use it. I found someone to use the canoe. Yeah. Update in future podcasts, but there is a chance at the bottom of that canoe is going to see water other than rainwater. Excellent. Okay. So other things that you can spend money on. Um, philanthropy. This is a little bit different than spending money on others because obviously it's charitable, it's gifting. Philanthropy is a big topic and, again, a subject probably for a future podcast. It's a really interesting area. When I talk about philanthropy, um, I'm talking about giving a quid to a homeless person as much as I'm talking about Bill Gates setting up a billion-pound charity. It can be any sort of giving to other people to help them, any sort of uh, charitable giving, uh, small or large. So there are a few principles that we can go by for philanthropy. So, for example, uh, planned giving tends to be uh, provide more well-being than reactive giving. The reason for that is because reactive giving tends to be assuaging feelings of guilt, whereas planned giving is much more about the feeling of joy of giving. And there's another aspect to that, if I may touch on that, because uh, I'm a firm believer in philanthropy and I, I like to think I do quite a bit for charity but it's not just necessarily a question of oh mate of mine's doing a sponsored bike ride I'll bung him some cash although I do do that I like to get involved in projects where I get something out of it too so I've been on a sponsored trek uh, up to uh, Everest Base Camp I've done a trek through the Andes I've done a uh, swimathon I've done the, the sport relief mile and things like that and actually so you get the satisfaction of raising money for good causes, but also while doing that, you're involved in something which, you know, Everest Base Camp is a hell of an adventure. So to say that I've been able to do that, while at the same time raising a few thousand pounds for a very worthwhile charity, is a double whammy. So, And that also links in with what you were talking about before, about memories. 
about how experiences give you memories. And so the memory I have of Everest, which is 10 or more years ago now, will stay with me forever. Toughest thing I ever, ever did. I don't ever imagine. want to do it again. I remember at the time you lost an awful lot of weight. I did. I need that. So that's the reason I need to do it again. That <laughs> wasn't a hint. Yeah, no, um, no, no. But, but, but you're right. It was, it, it, it's something I will look back on and I will never, ever forget that. And I've got other things through my life that I will never forget. And a lot of them are to do with doing something for other people, not just for myself. And of course, although that wasn't a financial transaction, you were taking time off work and you were spending quite a lot of your own money to do the trip, etc., etc. Yeah, so yeah. There, was a, there was a payment involved. Um, one of the other principles of philanthropy is that you in- can increase the well-being you get from your giving by giving it to something that you can either see the outcome from or that you have a direct personal relationship with. So obviously, in your case, the MS Centre has been the recipient of some of your childhood life. That's right, yes. My my late wife, Diana, who passed away nearly three years ago now, she'd had MS for most of our married life, and uh, therefore, obviously, I had a a strong personal interest in that charity, which which informed and fuelled my desire to want to do something to help, not necessarily Diana, she was on her own road with the illness, but perhaps other people um, with MS because the the whole point of MS funding particularly is if we can find the cure for it, which they still seem to be some distance away, they might actually be able to do something about preventing people in the future getting what is or can be a pretty horrible disease. So doing something that uh, you can can have a direct relationship with, uh, see the outcome of, that's a big area of uh, philanthropy as well, which is very interesting. And again, just going back to this idea that it's for small amounts or large amounts, um, it's important to say that philanthropy is not just for the wealthy. Um, there is a, a lot of encouragement for the government to do uh, philanthropy. There are tax savings, but studies have shown that actually tax savings don't really inspire people to give more money to charity, welcome as they are. Mm. Um, well, the only the only thing that inspires me actually is the is the is the gift aid. So actually, if I if I if I donate a certain amount of money, well, the government will then actually give a little bit extra. It's not costing me anything, and I quite like that. I like it too, but I would suggest you'd still give if it wasn't for the gift aid. Mm. The, the, the tax and the saving, don't listen to this government, I'm not suggesting you take it away, because uh, it's a wonderful thing, but uh, it's not driving people to give more. That's not kind of how it works, so it seems. Um, and it's also important to note that well-being comes from as much of a small donation as it can from a large donation. A small donation that's made out of a sacrifice can give more well-being than a large donation from money that people don't need, for example. So that's philanthropy. That's one area. Um, Another is bringing the future closer. Uh, If you've worked through the book or if you've had a financial planner, if you've created a path to a future that's based upon making you happier, then anything you can do to bring that future nearer is going to make you happier. It's going to increase your well-being. And that, David, is the best sales pitch for someone to take out a pension that you will ever hear. (laughs) Well, I think it is. Speaking as somebody who is getting closer and closer to the point at which I want my pension to start delivering, I I couldn't agree more. Although when I was in my 20s and my dad used to wisely counsel me about putting money away and setting up a pension scheme, I, of course, said, what's the point of that? I've got years to go yet. I wish I'd have listened to him a little bit harder. It's easy for us to say is to... um... Uh, I wouldn't say older people, that would be a bit rude to us both, but, you know, we're the wrong side of 45, I think we can safely say. (laughs) And if you speak to somebody at the age of 25 who hasn't yet been through their life, they can't see the point of saving credit very often. Somebody who's 55 very much can. Well, there's something to learn from the 25-year-old there, isn't there? You know, there's a lesson there for them. How much to actually put away of that disposable income? Remember, we're talking about 
excess monthly income. So we've worked out subsistence income, how much to live on. This is the excess we're worrying about here. How much to put away? A suggestion only is take 20% of your disposable income and stick it into a savings account or an ISA or a pension. Just put it away somewhere you can't see it. Whether that's into emergency funds, if you haven't built that up, that should be your first port of call. But stick 20% away, get used to it, forget about it, it becomes a habit. And then maybe increase that to 30% or whatever as you feel that it's okay. Um, but start doing something, even if it's just a tenner. So should you, do, should, should you do that monthly? So if you're getting paid monthly, should you be looking to put 20% of that money away every month? Generally speaking, if it's a monthly pay, yes. Although... We can vary that. For example, somebody that's self-employed might want to do a bit less um, and then top it up when they know what their trading position is at the end of the year, for example. Yeah, that's always been my issue, though. As a self-employed freelancer, I always think, oh, it's a bit tight this month. I'll put more money away next month. And then next month I go, oh, I've got a bit extra. I'll have a holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's where you get the halfway house, which is you, um, especially with online banking these days, set up another bank account um, and call it something like, I can't touch this account mm. or something where you can name these things can't you and stick it in there and then at the end of the year you think ah i forgot to put money away from my tax bill you've got it available mm. but if actually you've had a reasonable year then you can stick it into pension before the 5th of april tax deadline good advice as ever from financial expert chris budd let's move on to another um, area protection um, the ability to cope with a financial shock is one of the five key areas of well-being so if you've got a bit of spare money i'm afraid this is a bit dull and financial plannery but actually setting up some life assurance is going to give well-being because, you know, you're going to be able to cope with a financial shock. So uh, it doesn't have to cost a lot necessarily, depending on age, depending on who your dependents are, if you have any dependents. But setting up some sort of protection is probably going to be a good idea. Yeah, well, I've got that. Um, at your suggestion, I have to say, um, so I've got a life insurance. I've also got um, uh, illness protection uh, insurance. You don't know what you've got, do you? Uh, I do. Yeah, I've got <laughs> those two things and something else. Uh, no, but it basically means that, that, that obviously if anything did happen to me, um, I'm I'm covered. It's slightly frustrating sometimes because a reasonably large chunk of money comes out every month and I don't ever see the benefit. I'm only going to see the benefit from it if I'm ill, so I need to get myself ill. Well, exactly. Or dead. We had one client um, who... I suggested that we should do some life insurance because they had dependent children and they agreed to look into it and we went away, did some report, came back, presented them with some options and the husband said, thanks very much, Chris, we've had a chat, we're not going to do it. Said, okay, that's fine. Um, could I just ask your thinking behind that decision? He said, yeah, I'm not going to die. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, There's confidence for you. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, to date, he was right. Yeah. It was, it was 10 years ago and he's still with us. So That's all right then. Um, the final one i just touch on is repaying debt. Um, it's also a good thing to be spending your spare disposable income on. Um, bearing in mind that holidays are important, but they were including your subsistence income. This is spare money we're talking about. Repaying debt is going to be definitely something that can give well-being, depending on what the debt is. Debt's a very emotional subject. Um, over the years, many, many times we've seen people who have chosen to repay a mortgage rather than maybe do a pension, which might get them a tax relief, because they just don't like having debt and don't like having mortgage. And go with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I have to say that for me, you know, from an emotional point of view and whether it made sense financially at the time or not, honestly, I don't care, came into a lump sum, paid off my mortgage. And that feeling of knowing that the roof over my head was was there and entirely 100% mine, mine, gave me huge well-being. So it might not be the best use of the money, but it gives well-being. Mm. And that's what's important. 
If somebody has multiple debts, then a good little tip is to write a list down of those debts and write down the monthly amount you're paying and the most importantly, the interest rate that you're paying. Because we tend to have a habit of paying down our smallest debts first because we can see them disappear and it makes us feel better. And because they're, they're smaller. <laughs> yeah, it's easier. Um, but actually, you should be paying off the debts with a higher interest rate before you pay off the lower interest rate ones. So that's just another little tip of, of how to spend disposable income. Excellent. But you know what? I think we've covered everything, unless there's anything else you wanted to add, Chris? Only that if anybody else has got suggestions, I'd love to hear them. I'm not suggesting that we know everything. And if anybody else thinks, well, actually, this is what I spent my disposable income on and it gave me huge well-being, we'd love to hear. So it's a two-way conversation. Go out and buy the book if you haven't bought it already. Uh, Send us a tweet. Send us an email. Send us something via Carrier Pigeon. uh, And we'll get back to you very soon for the next Financial Wellbeing Podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you, Chris. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.finwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at finwellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at David underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. I've got the brains, you've got the looks. Let's make lots of money.